Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I do believe that the next wave of biosimilar adoption policy in the U.S. is going to need to involve some form of gain sharing with the patients. I'm your host, Alan Weil. In our multi-payer healthcare system, the pharmaceutical market involves the complex interplay of manufacturers, insurers, prescribers, and patients. Each seeks to protect its own interests, which can be counterproductive for overall system efficiency. The United States also has a high rate of use of generic drugs, which is generally considered a success story, as the introduction of generics can rapidly and dramatically reduce prices. But we've had much less success with biosimilars, the generic equivalents of high-cost biologic drugs. Pharmaceuticals, how they're priced, and how competition in the United States compares to other countries is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Jamie Robinson, the Leonard D. Schaefer Professor of Health Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Robinson is a contributing editor to Health Affairs, and he's the co-author of two papers published in the August 2021 issue of Health Affairs. In the first paper, Dr. Robinson and co-author Quentin Jerrion analyzed prices for three drugs and 11 competing biosimilars in France's single-payer health system. They find the launch of biosimilars in France are associated with price reductions for the originator drug and the similar drugs. In the second paper, where Dr. Robinson is co-author with Scott Howell and others, they investigated the economic burden of drug utilization management on payers, manufacturers, physicians, and patients. They report that all stakeholders would benefit from a de-escalation of utilization management, which could lower drug prices and increase patient access. Dr. Robinson, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alan. I'm uh, pleased to be with you, and uh, together we're going to solve this today, okay? All right. Well, before we solve it, I want to know why this set of topics catches your fancy. You in your research, cover topics ranging from biomedical innovation and pricing and pricing structures, not just in drugs, but you also look at lessons from other countries. Uh, How did you get interested in this collection of topics? Well, every time that anyone talks about trying to moderate prices and the rate of price growth in the United States, the immediate response is, well, what about innovation and funding for innovation? Conversely, Anytime anyone talks about we wonderful how innovation is, then the, the immediate question is, yeah, but can we afford this? What's the cost of this? And so for me, we need to keep these two things in our heads at the same time. That's led me both to looking at other countries which make these trade-offs in different ways than we do. And I think there's some successes from which we can learn. But I also think that the U.S., has uh, something to teach others uh, in this, particularly in the innovation ecosystem. And so we try to balance both of those going forward, really keeping innovation and affordability in my head at the same time. Uh, that's a really great way to think about this because you're absolutely right about the, what many view as the tension. And, and yet it does seem, and I'm going to follow up on this later, that better pricing in some ways could lead to more innovation, not less. We shouldn't just think of this as two sliders and one goes up, the other automatically goes down. It's how we do it. So let's get into a few of those examples in the papers in the August issue. One of your pieces in the August issue uh, looks at the biosimilars market in France. Now, 
Not all of our listeners are completely familiar with biosimilars, and they may well not be familiar with the French healthcare system. So let's just start with you setting the stage. What are the pricing issues for biosimilars? What are they? And what's interesting about the French system when it comes to biosimilar pricing? Biosimilars can be thought of as the generic versions of biologic uh, medications, but they differ from generics in that they are not identical to the biologics. They are similar, therapeutically equivalent, but as a practical matter, it means that we cannot allow the biosimilars to be substituted for biologics at the pharmacy by the pharmacist. It's the doctor that has to change his or her prescription. This introduces all sorts of uh, complications, but the potential for doing to biologics what's been done to uh, traditional drugs, which is spurring competition, price savings, and therefore better access to patients because they've got lower prices and lower cost sharing, is still very important. And it has been done much more successfully in Europe, including France, than in the U.S., so I've heard that before. Now, when we say Europe, of course, each of the systems in the various European countries is quite different. Uh, what did you see in the French system with respect to biosimilars? What interested me about the French system was is that it's often presented in the, the American health policy dialogue as the single-payer nation par excellence, if we want to use our French here. And the centralized, universal uh, government sets prices. Let's do that. So first of all, I'm a little skeptical that we can do anything uh, that France does besides uh, eat croissant or something like that. But examining it up close with detailed case study made me realize the extent to which the French system functions, and it functions reasonably well because it actually uses a lot of competition and a lot of decentralized negotiations in addition uh, to the centralized governmental rulemaking system. So we have to look below the surface to see how this system functions. And when we look below the surface, gee whiz, we see a bunch of behavior which looks, I don't know, a little bit American. And it's in France, it plays out in the biologics area through the hospitals. How do you get hospitals in what we think of colloquially as a single payer system to be market actors? Biologics in France are mostly administered in hospital-based ambulatory clinics. Uh, as in the United States, although we have also physician-based clinics. The government sets, negotiates with the manufacturers a price, a national price, which is what it pays to the hospitals. But it's not what the hospitals pay to the manufacturers. The hospitals negotiate with the manufacturers for the lowest price they can get using biosimilar competition. And the difference between what they pay the manufacturer and what they get paid by the government is the savings, and they get to keep 50% of that. So in a sense, the government is allowing the hospitals to keep some of the savings. If the hospitals do the work of negotiating the lower prices, and that raises to another issue, which I'm happy to get to if you want to, why, do hospitals, or why are hospitals able to negotiate better prices than the government? Well, I'm going to ask you, so why is it that hospitals are better able to negotiate a price than the government? Well, because the hospitals being closer to the doctors can actually commit to saying, if you give us a lower price, we'll use your product. 
um, and they are on board. And uh, and also from the point of view of the manufacturer, it is a local negotiation. It's not the whole country. It's actually a confidential negotiation. So for referencing and all of that, it, it's exempt from that. And so they are willing, in fact, they're forced to because they want to keep their market share, reduce their prices. Then what happens in France is that the government requires the hospitals to report to them the prices that they negotiate with manufacturers. And then in the following year, the government reduces its price to the hospitals and, in fact, absorbs that. The hospitals then, of course, are pushed to negotiate another round of discounts. And in the paper, that's what we do. We were able to document from 2005 to 2020 this cycle of reductions in the national rate followed by reductions in the hospital rate followed by new reductions in the hospital rate. And it's been what I would consider a success, a policy success in France because it allowed savings to accrue to the system without driving the manufacturers out of the market. Because they don't, because the manufacturers were willing to negotiate, and so therefore they didn't just say, "Okay, I'm leaving France." When you talk about this, it reminds me of other work you've done. I'm going to take you outside of this paper. You've written about reference pricing in the United States, and uh, this isn't exactly the same, but some of the dynamics you describe sound very similar. You're you're looking at a low price alternative. You're uh, setting your prices against it and saying. In this instance, the hospital gets to keep the difference. In the U.S., we tend to think of it as the patient gets to keep the the difference or the payer gets to keep the difference. But it's also about driving volume that when you have these references, the natural behavior of the purchaser is to go to the low-cost option and say, you know, you're getting rewarded for this. You may have dropped your price, but you're going to get more volume this has a lot of the same characteristics in a very different environment. Am I getting that about right? Or what's the same and what's different here? Well, there are certainly innumerable differences and complexities between consumer-centered reference pricing in the U.S. and this uh, hospital-centered reference pricing in France. We don't need to uh, dwell on those. But the basic idea is that We need to create, the purchasers need to create a business case for price reductions. The only reason why manufacturer is going to reduce their price is in in hopes of higher volume. And so in the French system, if they reduce their price, they'll sell more more to the hospital, who is the buyer. In the U.S., the issue has been, can uh, basically the consumer reduce their cost sharing if they use the cheaper product? And what we found in the U.S. is that uh, with drugs, that the 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 tiered formulary and the copay tiers have already done most of the work in pushing consumers to generics, but it has not worked for biosimilars. And so I do believe that the next wave of biosimilar adoption policy in the U.S. is going to need to involve some form of gain sharing with the patients. And there are huge, huge, because biologics are so expensive, huge savings to be had for for the patient and therefore for the system if the patient goes for the biosimilar versus the biologic, if the patient gets their fusion done in an ambulatory clinic rather than in a hospital. Um, And so I, I don't view it as any form of unethical or anything. I view it as gain sharing for the patient. The patients need relief from the cost of drugs. Well, that's certainly true, but you also mentioned that these are drugs where the decision is actually made by the clinician 
obviously the patient's part of the discussion. So what are the incentive sides? So let, let me start with the question about France. How does the hospital have the leverage to guide the physicians to prescribe the biosimilar instead of the patented product? Where does that leverage come from? In France, uh, it's very straightforward. The hospital stocks the biosimilar, let's say, and that's what there is. And that's what you use. You're the doctor. That's what you use. You work here. That's what you use. Uh, just like we stock certain devices, that's what you use. So does that happen in the United States? Well, uh, absolutely it happens in the United States. Uh, with um, as, we know, as we know, a lot of hospitals are acquiring physician practices and employing doctors. And guess why they do that is because they are buying these drugs now biologics, biosimilars, and other expensive drugs. The doctors, frankly, that work for the hospitals use the drugs that the hospitals want them to use. I mean, these are therapeutically equivalent. This has been tested. There's not a, a quality issue going on here, but there certainly is. It's like with generics. There's a certainly an um, economic issue going on. So I guess uh, the upshot of this, to the extent there's just one, is that the term single payer doesn't really capture what's going on on the ground in some settings. And that if you look hard enough and if you think about it uh, creatively as you've done, you can find dynamics that look an awful lot like market dynamics, even in a system that we refer to as single payer. And sometimes the single payer structure sitting over those market dynamics can actually uh, improve the functioning of the market. Is that right? I, I definitely agree with that. If you look at single-payer systems such as uh, France, but also Britain, you see that they've, they have they pass down the single-payer incentives down to either regions, they have regional budgets, or they have hospital budgets, all to create incentives at the, at the grassroots for economizing choices. Yet the, the centralized governmental system plays a very positive role in standardizing that and giving incentives for that to, you know, to, and for the savings ultimately to flow back to the public. So I say that single payer works best when it's got elements of this market and decentralized system. But I'm also going to argue the con converse. You can see decentralized systems work best when they have certain amount of, of national governmental regulatory overlay. And the best example is Germany. They have a multi-payer private health insurance system with about 100 sickness funds, all of which are private, not-for-profit uh, entities, which are competing with each other. Um, but they have a very strong regulatory frame, uh, risk adjustment, and they do centralized uh, price negotiations for drugs and a variety of other ways, and so that they they have a much more, if I, if I would say, much more efficiently functioning system than does the U.S., which we've tilted way down the market-oriented thing with an insufficient amount of governmental support. And then I'm sure you can find other countries where there's an excess of government and an insufficiency of market incentives. Well, I want to talk to you about the other paper in the August issue having to do with uh, drug utilization review, uh, but why don't we do that after we take a short break? Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of health affairs. 
Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading health policy journal. Subscribers have exclusive access to health affairs research, ahead of print articles, and resource pages. Subscribe today by visiting our website. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Robinson about pharmaceutical pricing. We just had a robust conversation about the French healthcare system and how they handle biosimilars. Uh, but you were also on a paper that looked at the system-wide cost of drug utilization review. I thought this was a really fascinating paper. So maybe if we could just begin with you giving us the major findings about what costs were examined and what do they come from, and, and then we'll talk about some of the implications. Certainly. The discussion in the policy world of drug pricing in the U.S., tends to focus on the list price and the observation that prices are so high and they're rising and uh, it's free pricing and price gouging and all of that. But the reality is, is that net prices, after taking into account discounts and rebates, have not been rising that fast. Some of them have been going down. And uh, which is not that dissimilar to what we see in Europe in some in some contexts. And one could say, well, okay, the system's kind of working. It's the PBMs are doing that, and it's okay. That's what they're doing. Yeah, PBMs are the pharmaceutical benefit managers, just for yeah, those who just are. Just like, yeah, insurance companies for drugs. Yep. Um, the problem is that the way in which these private plans are achieving those discounts and rebates is by imposing uh, restrictions on the physician's ability to prescribe prior authorization, step edits, formulary restrictions. And secondarily, cost sharing on the patients, which is becoming increasingly onerous, coinsurance, high deductibles. And these, and then the, the insurers or the PBMs offer to the drug manufacturers, if you give me a big rebate, I will lighten up on these access restrictions. And it, it works. The problem is, is it creates these huge transactions costs in, uh, on doctors. The administrative hassle is unbelievable. On patients, uh, there's a lot of failures of adherence due to cost sharing and prior Roth. We are shifting onto the sickest people in the population, the burden of trying to control health care costs. So working with uh, my friend uh, Scott Howell, who I've known for many years, we decided, well, could we quantify this? What is the cost of pharmaceutical utilization management on the insurers that, that create it, manage it, and run it? on the pharmaceutical manufacturers that have to respond to it, on physicians who have to uh, prescribe through it, and on patients who have to figure out how to pay their cost sharing and do with UM. So that's what this paper is. It was our best attempt using the entire literature, peer-reviewed, journalistic literature, white papers, whatever we could find to try to quantify at least some elements of the costs of utilization management. So before you go any further, you said something that set off a little alarm bell. Now, neither you nor I is a clinician, so maybe this is the wrong place to have this conversation. But when I think about utilization management, as I learned about it many years ago, the notion was something like this. Individual clinicians can't always keep up with the rapid pace of uh, knowledge and information about the effectiveness of different treatments. But those big insurance companies, as much as we love to hate them, they could aggregate huge amounts of data. They have access to analytic resources. 
And they were in some sense protecting me, the patient, from an overzealous uh, physician who was telling me to go get an MRI that maybe I didn't need or maybe they had a financial interest in giving me. So I saw at least some part of utilization management as actually being pro-patient. You describe it primarily in the context of sort of uh, driving the market and market share and saying, we'll loosen up over here if you give us a better price. That sounds like a purely financial transaction with nothing clinical behind it. Um, Is that really what it's come to? Well, I think it's both. I think, first of all, we say there's no utilization management done for cheap drugs. Regardless of the rate of inappropriate uh, prescription or anything like that, you are on your own. I do think that there is a role for uh, utilization management, um, but I do believe that we've gone way, way off the deep end. And if you look back to our international comparisons, if you look to Germany or France, you don't see that. You simply don't see that. Just to take the, the most recent example, for example, a recent example of these PCSK9 inhibitors, which got a lot of discussion, the utilization management was rejecting two-thirds to three-fourths of the prescriptions. These prescriptions were written by board-certified cardiologists for elderly patients who had been taking all kinds of medications and were not doing well. Are we thinking that two-thirds of that is sleaze and fraud and stupidity? You know, it just boggles the mind. So I think that, uh, and if Germany can do without it and still have lower costs than our, we do, um, there's something to be learned there. So I'm not, I fully empathize with the health plans and the insurers and the employers who say prior authorization is one of the few tools that we have to moderate cost. I, I get it. So I'm not saying, we should get rid of utilization management and get rid of cost sharing and be done. That would lead to a spike in spending. I think I'm in favor of a quid pro quo that, that pharmaceutical manufacturers need to reduce their prices. And just as a first benchmark, I would say, well, why don't we they consider the ICER price benchmarks? I think that that's um, uh, evidence-based and, you know, let's start there. And so prices come down and then, but also access barriers should come down. And this is what they do in Germany. Uh, this is what they do elsewhere. And the basic idea is we'll charge less, but then we trust the doctors. And we want to encourage the patients to take these medications if it's appropriate. We do have a, a problem in this country of patients not taking appropriate medications, failures of adherence for all kinds of reasons, and vaccines, for example. Uh, and we don't want to have the basic message being that there's too much uh, medication. Once again, we're talking for the sickest people who are being uh, prescribed the most expensive and the most, you know, most complex drugs. Okay, so there's so much in what you've said. Your comment that we don't do utilization management for cheap drugs is quite telling because it does suggest that there's a, a financial uh, basis to this behavior. But then you get into the underutilization and, and, you know, from a payer's perspective, this is what's always been odd and it's part of what's behind the value-based insurance design movement is that you see the dollar that you spent on the expensive drug, but you don't immediately see the dollar that you have to spend cleaning up after someone who would be healthier if they were taking their maintenance medication, but they can't afford it. So you're saying... 
let's balance our approach back in the direction of making sure people who need the drugs can afford them. Uh, that would open up access to markets for pharmaceutical manufacturers, but you got to do it by lowering your price. Now, we've jumped a little bit over what you found, so I don't want to miss that point. You've gotten straight to the implications. What did you find in terms of the scale of the cost of this system? We found uh, that based on the literature that the U.S. spends $100 billion a year just in pharmaceutical utilization management. And that is, a, is an underestimate because there's so many things that were not quantified. For example, we didn't quantify any of the health effects for any patient that doesn't take a drug because they can't afford their copay. That, that's, that's not counted. Uh, there's all kinds of parts in the paper that go through all the things that we couldn't quantify. And anything that we couldn't quantify counted as zero. So I think it's big. It is one of the reasons why we have very high healthcare costs with mediocre health outcomes in the United States. It's also a reason why there's such a high level of frustration. We, the doctors, we have a major serious issue with physician burnout. And there is nothing, well, there's two things that doctors hate more than anything else. One is fighting with their EMR, and the other is fighting with utilization management at health plans and PBMs. They hate that. They hate that. So we need to protect our doctors. Doctors should prescribe on evidence-based. They should prescribe according to the FDA label and within that to where the evidence is. Sometimes the label is broader than the evidence. And I mean, it's, there's a lot of complexities. But uh, so I'm not in favor of, you know, doctors should make money prescribing expensive drugs and, you know, all systems go. And anyway, I, this, I think this is an optimistic story. I think that, that we could say, listen, the, the manufacturers might be willing to accept ICER benchmarks if they get something in exchange, what is it that they want? More sales. They also actually believe that their products are good, by the way. Pharmaceutical companies actually think their drugs make people healthy. So they feel good about it. And there's sort of a trade-off there. And then there's this fringe benefit, which is less torture for the doctors and for the patients. You know, one of the things you talked about, about letting the doctors prescribe, is it reminds me in quality measurement and quality improvement in much of the healthcare sector, we're not doing, we're not doing piecework. We're not scrutinizing every decision a doctor or a hospital or another clinician makes. We're looking at trend lines. We're looking at outliers. We're saying among a risk-adjusted population of your size, we would expect X number of people to need a total joint replacement and why number of people to need a stent. And if you're off the charts here, we're going to try to figure out what's going on. It does sound like maybe there's something to be learned here on the pharmaceutical side. Instead of doing this prescription by prescription drug utilization management, you look at prescribing patterns and you try to figure out if there are clinicians who are uh, outliers, maybe in either direction. And uh, that might create a type of accountability with a somewhat lower, maybe a much lower uh, price point in terms of administrative costs, as well as some real quality benefits, as opposed to just sort of beating people over the head. I, I fully agree with you. And <clears throat> I don't want to sound like I'm just a promoter for the German system, for example, but that's exactly what they do. They don't do prior authorization, but they do because all this stuff is in the electronic medical records now. So they, for every physician, they they profile their drug use and then they can risk adjust it based on the patient population. Obviously, oncologists have different patterns than primary care physicians. And 
Academic medical center oncologists tend to deal with the sicker patients, and so they spend more. Everybody accepts that. But every once in a while, there'll be a doctor that will be an outlier. <clears throat> and then they will basically go in there and say, doctor, why? And the doctor says, well, my patients are sicker. And then they say, well, could you, <laughs> do you have any evidence? You know what? They go through the dance. And uh, it, it seems to work. And it also seems to preserve this notion that the doctor is a respected professional using his or her professional judgment to do the right thing for the patients as opposed to some sort of a, an automaton that we've got to regulate and manage and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's one of the things, this is getting us way off topic, but one of the things we, for the long-term health of the U.S. healthcare system is preserving the, the, the professionalism, the staff, the honor, and the dignity of the medical workforce against this mother may I second guessing by insurers, hospitals, government is really important. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, as you say, we've gotten a little off topic, but this is actually the topic of your lifetime uh, work of research and analysis. So let's say you have the ear of the Biden administration or whoever the czar over the American healthcare system is, to, if we ever had such a czar, give this person a pearl or two of wisdom from your studies that can help lead the U.S. health system in a better direction. I would say it's a two-step, I have a two-step suggestion. First of all, create or authorize some form of health technology assessment entity like ISERP, could be private, could be public, so that we, it creates benchmarks for what it would be a value-based price. Okay, that's number one. Don't impose those prices on manufacturers. That's drive everybody crazy. That's, but that's step one. Step two would be to facilitate, figure out a process by which manufacturers who voluntarily met those publicly authorized benchmarks, in exchange, their products would face what I would call evidence-based prior authorization, and moderate cost-sharing for the patients in exchange. And when I mean moderate, I mean like $25, $50. Not like, you know, I've got another paper coming out in this, this famous journal called Health Affairs and in a couple of months where it's thousands of dollars for cancer drugs, thousands for cancer patients. That is unethical as well as inefficient. So that's what it is. Lower price, better access. Let's make it happen. Well, Dr. Robinson, you have exceeded uh, expectations for this podcast, uh, given us a tour of some very excellent uh, research, but also taken it to its policy implications, which is what we always set out to do at Health Affairs. Thank you so much for being my guest on Health Policy. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.